There we are. Hey, everybody. Larry Powell here, your, your, your host for Studio HFL. It's like I've never spoken before. Uh, welcome here, Tuesday night, 8 o'clock. I am thrilled. You can already see on your screen uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Mark Gould is here as my guest tonight. And uh, Mark, uh, really, really glad you're here. Um, but before we, we talk to you and all the interesting things that you've done and continue to do, I wanna recognize uh, Austin Custom Brass as this month's sponsor for these live events. And of course, this month has been uh, terrific as we started out with uh, Eric Miyashiro. That was, that was fantastic. Uh, let's see, who was after that? Uh, this other guy, oh, that's the guy in front of us. Oh, uh, this is out of order. That's fine. This is great. Gabriel DiMartino coming up this Sunday night, 8 p.m. Gabriel's going to be a, a great guest. And then, of course, last Saturday morning, I had Sergey on. And uh, that and Eric's interviews, along with everybody else's, are available on the YouTube channel. So uh once the live interview's done if you've missed it or you want to go back and catch something again you can always go to the youtube channel and check it out there um let's see so again austin custom brass trent austin if you guys don't know trent or his business you need to well you can't miss him on social media he's everywhere and trent's a great guy uh you can of course go to austincustombrass.biz uh, contact me if you need more information on that uh let's see one other thing here Mark, I don't know. You might like this. These are some shirts I came up with recently. Oh, and, my. Uh, yeah, it says, uh, we will not be silenced. This is the World Trumpet Force, the WTF. World Trumpet Force. I like that. Very good. Yeah, thank you. So there's that one. And then this good. one is uh, Ventilavis Magis, which translates blow harder. Uh -huh. Yeah, I thought it's a pretty good mantra for... Uh, you're, you know. you're rolling with merch. <laughs> yeah, we got to do something, right? Well, um, it's funny you talk about Trent Austin. So everybody, you should be in touch with Trent Austin because Trent Austin is really, I would call him trumpet in the best sense, trumpet crazy. He's trumpet crazy. He's a fantastic player, builder, maker of mouthpieces, Um knows a lot about a lot of different instruments. So, I mean, that's a very good place to go for all kinds of things. With Trent Austin, I love Trent. Well, and, you know, it's funny. All his stuff that he puts on Instagram and Facebook, you know, it could be anywhere from like a two-minute demo from, a you know, one of these vintage trumpets or cornets that comes through a shop or like a full-blown demo. I mean, the man knows an awful lot about trumpet. And he, the, the thing is, he makes it fun to share. So, uh, yeah. Trent's a great guy. Uh, let's see. Did I take care of all the stuff I did? Um, oh, I wanted to let everybody know, too, uh, this week's radio show, Thursday night, 8 p.m. Uh, it's going to feature my interview with Tina Helseth. And, of course, like with all the radio shows, I'm able to actually cut in music, uh, not just uh, dialogue like this, but uh, WICR 88.7 FM, also available on iHeartRadio app. And that's Thursday night at 8 p.m. And I think that's good for now. Let's get down to talking some trumpet with Mark Gould. So, Mark, again, welcome. Glad you're here. Pleasure to be here, Larry. Um, <laughs> I have watched you. Uh, it sounds like a stalker, right? I have watched you from afar for a long time. Uh huh. Um, I, I think one of the things that sticks in my head, of course, is this this one video 
talking to God, talking Mom. to God. Five. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, it's brilliant, you know, and, and as tongue in cheek as some people might think that is, I thought the stuff that you put out there is like, this is, this is the real deal. This is really how you get to the nuts and bolts of these pieces. Well, I, I mean, thank you for saying that. I mean, it may be, but it's also since I hear uh, players play these excerpts all the time, they become like a meaningless series of notes because they play them so often. So to add a little levity to these excerpts like Petrushka or Mahler V or Zarathustra, this it's sort of it's like taking a breath of air, breath of fresh air. I mean, that's the way I saw it. Now, the Mahler five one, you know, like the way we, you know, think these up. Now, who is your audience? I mean, 12-year-old boys sitting there with their parents, <laughs> boys and girls? No. Just like trumpet degenerates who, who are who tune into your show. I mean, which way, what is it? What's, who's your audience? Because it depends how explicit I can be about how these things come to fruition. What do you want to hear? The G-rated version. So it's like, oh, well, we sat around and thought this. No, we were like, um, well, you can cut this out, right? Or this is live. This is live, but you're good. I, I don't think there are any 12-year-olds watching this No, right like, now. you know, we, we were, I, I go out to Oregon, you know, with my partner, Brian McWhorter, we're talking about, okay, well, I got some stuff for this video. And I say, well, I have this line, you know, talking to God, I have that. I have the, this thing. And then we're in his garage, you know, fooling around. And, you know, we're stoned out of our minds. And, and he picks up the Sawzall, you know. And I said, that's it. You know, we'll play the Sawzall. We'll do Mahler 5 on the Sawzall. Done, video, you know, middle, beginning, and end. So then we had it. So it's it's like great fun, you know, that kind of creativity if something clicks, you know, like the idea is, is good all the way through. Okay, then it's good. And not yeah. too And you guys were into making videos long before the pandemic, you know, provided the opportunity to ever. <laughs> yeah, it's like about uh, 12 years now, 12 or 13. Yeah, yeah we've yeah. been doing that and, you know, making shows and writing stuff. So, you know, we've been yeah. doing uh, you know that Mahler Five is a good segue, and and of course uh, I told you we're gonna we're gonna definitely promote your book. I'm gonna throw that here on the screen, uh, Gould on Music, and I've got the hard copy myself to prove it. It's right here. Here's my camera. Uh, I've read it. Uh, I've got my digital copy. Actually, I downloaded that while I was waiting for this to arrive in the mail, and oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> uh, first of all, tell us tell everybody where they can find the book. It's at uh, qpress.ca, Q, the letter Q, press at C-A. That's it. You can Yeah. And, and of course. MarkGoldTrumpet.com. You can get it there as well. Yeah. Order. And I tell you, um, what great reading. You know, it's, and it's kind of ironic, too, that we're talking today. I think, you know, Peter Bond just released his book right, in the right. last few days. So it's like, you know, when, uh, when are, when's Pendolf, uh, you know, when are the rest of the guys going to start putting their books out? You know, cause obviously you've, you had way too much time in the pit. Oh, oh my. Well, Peter, you know, Jim Pandolfi, this is, this is, uh, this is a crew. I mean, the opera crew, we, we, we had a good time. Yeah. Let's put it that way. We did the best we could. We well, 
So uh, back to the book. I, you know, I read it, and it, there are two things, man, Mark, that stand out right away. One is swing. Right. I, I don't think I'll ever personally think about any genre the same way again. And the other is about taking risks, you know, about being on the edge. Right. And I'm thinking that's, to me, those are, those are huge. And, you know, I went back and read the part about swing. I don't know how many times over and over. I'm thinking, you know, I get it, but how do you communicate that to somebody who thinks you're talking just about jazz? Well, I could, I, I could sing a lot of things to you. So for example, if I sang, Washington Post March to you. I said, but I'm going to swing it, but at quarter note equal 100 instead of 120. Now, this is very possible to do it. So I can get it in sort of a pocket there. Or else I could play it faster and play it on top of the time. But it's just a question. I would practice singing the things. So I could sing any passage to you anyway. Because I could hear it a lot of different ways. But it's basically when you look at a piece of music, right? You look at it and go like, oh, right. It should probably, it looks like it goes like this about this fast, right? You evaluate that. Like yourself, you look at a piece and say, well, it looks like it could go this fast mm -hmm. to work for me. It worked for me or work for the tempo. You know, it's always flexible. You can hear things at many different tempos, that sort of thing. And I mentioned that in the book about, you know, practicing things at different tempos, really significantly different tempos mm -hmm. and make Uncomfortable. it comfortable. Yeah, and make it sound good at that tempo. Not mechanically slower, but sound good at that tempo. And really get it to be musical. And that also will change the way you think about a lot of things. If you where hear- did, Where did you come with, uh, when did you come to this idea of using the word swing to, to uh, attach to that? Well, I mean, Duke Ellington don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. That applies to anything, right? I mean, yeah, but I mean, how you uh, came to applying it to classical music? Well, I've been, I've always been told that by players I respected. Mm. There was a flute player in the Met, Jimmy Politis, when I first got to the Met. He would say that very erudite man, and he would say that he says, "Don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing." That's but Mozart for sure. Or Baroque music, I mean, if it's not swinging, I mean, I don't really, it's not that interesting. It could be correct, but if it has a, you're really playing the groove hard, I mean, this is fantastic. Well, you know, and we've all been in performances like that where it's like, oh, this, the band is rocking. You know, it's like sort of in a place where that's right, it feels good to everybody. Everybody's feeling good and feeling it. Does it happen all the time, but it can happen. Um, you think audiences pick up on that when something's in the group, when it, something's happened? Immediately. Immediately. Look at live performances of a group like Queen hmm. with Freddie Mercury. It's like of that genre of music. And, you know, I mean, I, it's not my music. It's, you know, after my time. But I would go back and listen to this. 
because I was talking to Gonch, you know, and Gonch is a big queen freak, you know, Thomas Gonch. Yeah. And he's of that age that he grew up with that, you know, I didn't grow up with that. So I said, all right, I'll check it out. But watching Freddie Mercury, the swing of that whole thing and swinging with the audience. Oh, yeah. Genius. Great. In classical music, you'd take a singer like Cecilia Bartoli. <sighs> Be still so, my heart, right? <laughs> Bartoli, she could she could do all the Rossini. She would sing Rossini at the opera, the Met or any on any of her records. And you, you don't need a conductor because her her groove is so hard and so swinging and perfect that everybody you can just stand there. The conductor doesn't really have to do anything. It's like right in a pocket, you know, and she gets it right there, right on the top of everything. So that's you know, she looks like she is just enjoying every moment on stage too. That that I couldn't swear to that. I've never seen singers really, uh, other than ready to cower under the bed in terror before <laughs> they go out on the stage <laughs> and singing an opera. Oh, I mean. My first year at the opera, I mean, I'll tell you the story, Franco Corelli. And Franco Corelli was a very, very famous tenor, like in the 1960s, 60s. And he, he was at the end of his career when I joined in 1974. Mm -hmm. And the first time I saw him, I was standing backstage playing a stage band in Turandot at the Met. I'm standing backstage and I see... Franco Corelli with his overcoat on running for the fucking exit. And the, and the stage manager grabs him and just said, you know, you know, no, no, you got to go on. He was in such terror, you know, and then he, they finally, they pushed him out on the stage. You know? And that he, stuff really happens. Oh, oh, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like, um, just so nerve wracking, you know, nerve wracking doing that stuff all the singers it's like um makes them very uptight um and some of the the singers if they're perfectionists it's like almost not worth it judith blagan you know the great soprano you know she was a lead leading singer at the opera in the 70s like she just stopped singing because she didn't like the pressure she said she couldn't stand it anymore that's well, like glenn gould Right. And the public performances. Well, th th that's another level because he felt that he only could say what he had to say most clearly in a recorded medium. And I respect that. It's another level. He's not just stage fright. He just doesn't like an audience. He doesn't need that to. He can express his art much more clearly, like with nobody around. And obviously he was right. He did. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to go back to these, uh, these singers who, you know, are, are a bit hesitant to come onto stage. Was there ever an uh, a time when the orchestra could sense this, if something's going on? I mean, was there ever just the orchestra became nervous for the, the people on stage because of what was going on? Or was the orchestra just always focused straight ahead well you notice what's going on on the stage now as you know because you played in enough pits to know the orchestra really doesn't care much 
what happens to the people on the stage? I mean, they wish them the best, but <laughs> it's not going to change their life, you know. Mm -hmm. You can sense when someone's nervous. Oh, man. Oh, all of them. You can sense all that. I've seen them all nervous, you know. I saw um, Pavarotti very, very nervous. Very nervous. He Well, he was always, well, he's a good example. He's always a nervous wreck. He was always a nervous wreck. I've never seen anything like it. At recording sessions, he'd sit in the corner. He'd be wrapped up in a scarf. He's looking miserable. Miserable, because he has to be Pavarotti. Mm -hmm. so, like, oh, it's like an ordeal to have, you know, having to do that. Okay, money note. You got it tonight? You know, is it still there? Well... Did you ever sense that kind of pressure in the pit? For myself? Yes. Oh, God, yes, of course. Oh, I never, I'm not like, um, I'll tell you who's like built for playing in an orchestra first trumpet. I'll give you the people. Michael Sachs, um, uh, Hooten, Bilger, Mark Inouye built for it and they love it chris martin in his way yes L less so less so i mean he, he's great and everything but i'm not sure how much he if he loves it as much as those guys mm. you know michael Sachs, he loves the pressure and doing it doing the thing you know i can't say i, I ever really looked forward to a lot of stuff I mean, I did it, and you have to be into it to do it. But it's like, uh, it's like it never, never was, it never was my thing. It was like too much. I'm worried about, um, uh, worried too much about performance. I mean, there's other things I'm more interested in. I mean, I, I like to perform. I like mm -hmm. to do it. playing in the orchestra was was less fun than other kinds of performing. I got to tell you, because of the pressure. But you know, I mean. And I talk about it in the book, you know, a pharmaceutical orchestra. Everybody's whacking Indoral and everybody's very nervous and they want to be, they don't want to fuck up in front of their colleagues. It's, it's like they, you know, it's like it becomes this thing. It's like, well, really? Um, um, no, no, no. I don't want to go there. I don't like that. I don't. I don't like that vibe at all, you know. I mean, it would be better, like, you know, what the guys used to do to control their nerves was drink. So they were like a lot of alcoholics, you know. And, you know, like on stage, like Stagliano, famous horn player in Boston, played like an angel. But, you know, he had to get the mixture just right, the right amount of alcohol with. And then it could be extraordinary, you know, just beautiful. But then, you know, he might have overdone it. Once or twice, if you know what I'm saying. So, so okay, but you joined the Met. How were you 16? Do I remember that right? You were 16. No, 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 no. 25. 25. I was close. <laughs> I was close. Okay, 20 at uh, 25. Still young, especially for an orchestra of that stature, right? Yes. Uh, okay. So think about yourself at 25, and then what did you say? 29 years later, you know, 50. Uh, well, I can't do my math. 29 years later. Right. If you, it, Now you're able to look at both ends of that, that tenure. Compare yourself 
to who you were when you got there and who you were when you left. When you left. Well, that, I never went to music school, so I never went to conservatory. So I never studied music like that. You know, I, I went to school for something else and got out. I was playing. I was always playing a lot of stuff. When I went to school in Boston, I was playing a lot of jazz with blues bands, house band for various stuff, you know. Um, and then I came to New York. I started playing classical music again because I was good when I was a kid. You know, I was a good player. And then started freelancing. And then I just joined the Met as first trumpet. Yeah, it sort of happened like that. It's weird. I mean, it's like an unconventional route, for sure. But the opera was exactly the right gig for me. You know, they wanted someone who was like the counterbalance to Mel yeah. Broyles. Well, that's what I was just trying to remember. I think it was at three years. You know, you were you were kind of given the uh, the easy stuff. You know, while you were getting your feet wet there. Yeah, they didn't put you right because Mel always played everything. That was his thing to, you know, play the big stuff. So it's like, I'm not coming in there and displacing Mel. He was not particularly warm and helpful to his colleague. Let's put it that way. But that was fine. You know, I just had to learn, learn yeah. the game. So my education came really at the opera of like really studying and learning and watching, you know, some really great conductors and listening to great music and listening to everything just sort of drinking it all in that was my music school and then i sort of had to get the playing thing right you know learning well what what's the trumpet supposed to do in the opera what's the job what am i supposed to do in these different pieces and you know that 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 takes a while to get that that takes a while really that takes a while Okay, so at some point, right, all of us who are playing an orchestra, uh, we get comfortable enough to the point to where, you know, somebody steps on the podium and we're thinking, that's not how that goes, right? <laughs> and, it, and sometimes we actually say it out loud. It, and it, I, I'm just talking about a friend I have that sometimes opens his mouth too much, you know, in a rehearsal. Right. <laughs> you, should, you know, I, I'm just thinking in your experience at the Met, Anybody ever step on the podium where you're like, eh, I don't want to play it that way. That's not, not the way it goes. Well, it, it, th that's interesting you say that. I would say most of the time, the conductor will choose a tempo that's like a little weird or very difficult. But um, the more I came to understand, if the conductor was competent, if they were competent, I'd say, well, all right, I'm going to try to hear it this way and see how he's conducting. Okay, I'll put it here. Maybe he'll like this here. And mm -hmm. as I got more experience, then they were fine with that. They actually appreciated that, where I could anticipate you want it on top of the time. You want to, like, go ahead a little bit here. You know, I'm sensing if I can steer the boat in a way mm -hmm. that makes sense to the whole thing. But yeah, I mean, in freelance conductors, oh my God, yes, you know they they tell you some make a metaphor, like someone will you know say, well, it should sound you know like walking in in a field and and it should or, or something it should the sound should be some shit, you know, 
And then it's like, well, I mean, you just sort of like, what are you doing? You know, gee, that's not, you know, what, what? Well, you know, but orchestra players, they think that the conductor's the enemy. And all of them. Well, <laughs> generally speaking, mm-hmm. generally speaking, if it's your boss and there, you know, there are some, I've, I've always had good bosses. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy Levine was a great boss. He was really a great boss. Mm-hmm. Real genius, musical genius, great boss. Mm-hmm. Um, very demanding, but, you know, he didn't, he was cool. He didn't, didn't really go after anybody. Mm-hmm. Never saw him do that. Mm-hmm. And he kept his cool, but he was demanding. You know? So you mentioned that you conduct. When you first got the opportunity to stand on a podium, uh, where was your focus? Were you just on the music or were you thinking, I'm going to do it my way finally? How, what was your intent? Well, n- no, you, you. I have uh, what I was saying to you before we came on. It's like someone memorizes something and it's in their head. They're hearing it. Mm-hmm. But they're not taking account who's in front of them and how that works when you're doing it with someone else. So that's a good one. At first, I, I would conduct, and every I thought everybody was playing late, but it was the way I was I was conducting. I wasn't I wasn't sort of going, and I was not able to to get things rolling easily. You know, with more experience, then it becomes quite easy. Mm-hmm. You know, to get get something to move along, you can get that to go easily. You know how to do that, how to anticipate that, but. Yeah, I'm writing a, a writing now about conducting and and conducting. It's like the best job in the world. You get they get paid way way more money than the musicians, and you imagine you know you drop your arms and this voluptuous sound envelops you, and you think you are a god because this angelic outpouring. You think you have something directly to do with this at a certain point. So you feel that you are actually doing this. You are making this sound and it's going from God's brain to your heart and you live for art, you know, that sort of thing. Right. So, but it's the most fun. I mean, conducting is a lot of fun. Well, I, I mean, remember the first time I stood on a stage, you know, to, to do that. I've had a few opportunities and that first time that sound, right. Just kind of washed over you. You're it's like, uh, it's invigorating and stimulating. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, now I don't want to do that all the time. I really enjoy playing, you know, in the back row. I enjoy making music from there, but it really was a fantastic experience. Oh yeah. I mean, it's easier than playing. That's the other, that's, let's be very clear about that. There's no comparison. It's much, much easier than playing. I mean, you have this guy, what was his name? He was a guy, this amateur in New York City, very rich guy. And he, you know, he bought an orchestra and he took conducting lessons because he wanted to conduct Mahler II. One of, I think it was Mahler II. So he learned to conduct Mahler II, right? Now he learned to do that in a year or two. Well, how long would it take him to learn to play the first violin part or the first trumpet part? Right year or two so i mean yeah you could sort of yeah i'm still working on the first trumpet part i i'm nowhere close 
on on Mahler too. Yeah. Well, I, I'm kidding. I mean, there's I, none of these regional orchestras are ever going to do anything like that. You know, nothing that big. Players, right? Uh, not enough cycles. You know, I think the band's got to be together more often to to pull off that kind of rep. Well, if the strings can do it, then everybody else you could just knock it off. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can do it. Mm -hmm. There's no reason that you couldn't do it. Now we're doing. The, sorry, go ahead. The string section. If the string section can play it, mm -hmm. then you could do it. I mean, the wind, wind and brass section most likely could are able to do that just fine. You yeah, know? except except that with these regional groups, usually we have a Saturday morning dress and a Saturday night concert. So you, you have to play through the program uh, twice on Friday. You have a Friday double and then a, a double on Saturday. So imagine playing Mahler two four times in two days. Well, what, you playing it in the morning? Is there people at the dress rehearsal on Saturday? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, so you're playing two performances. So you're doing bang, bang, four in a row. That's tough. It is tough. That's tough. That's, yeah, because you could get a little bit hurt. You'd be a little banged up. Well, you know, you're, they, the conductor says, eh, on the dress rehearsals, you can take it down and, you know, lay out, let your assistant do whatever. And, and of course, that never really happens. <laughs> you know, we always, we always still go full throttle on there. So, uh, hey, there's a there's a comment here, Andrew Davids. Oh, this goes back to an earlier comment. You said you guys were doing the best you could. Uh, I can only dream of being that good. Yeah, Andrew, thank you uh, for that comment. Um, I, I want to go back. It will take a little bit of a left turn. I want to go back to the book. Okay, sorry. That you, no, no, it, it's it's this is good. Uh, but I but I do want to give uh, real attention to this because it's like. Um, with Rudd's book that just came out. Mm -hmm. This is, it's full of stuff that it's like, this should be on every musician's bookshelf. It should be in every music studio's uh, required reading. And it's just, it's full of experience. I think really that's what it comes down to. It's, it's valuable experience right at everybody's fingertips. Mm -hmm. So how did, how did this come about? Well, I started, I started working on this. I was talking to my friend Alan Colon, you know, Colon, lip flexibility. So he sort of lives nearby. He's an old friend. And he said, why don't you write, you know, a book, you know, a music book, write etudes or something you wanted me to. I said, I don't really want to do that sort of book. So then I started to write this thing in, in the pandemic. This is great. Now I have an excuse never to see anybody. This is wonderful. You know, for me now, I mean, you know, I don't know. Oh, sorry. You know, you know, I don't want to die. I can't see you. Now it's loosening up. It's going to be, you know, I'll have less time. So I had a lot of time. So every day I get up and write. And I worked at worked on it with a, a, a former student, Toby Pank, went to Juilliard. He's now in another, another field. Great trumpet player, but he's a very literate guy. So I would send him copy and he would send back some stuff, comments and so it went through and it took, you know, it took about uh, eight months to write it. And it, wow. I, wanted to, I wanted to, you know, include a little bit about me, a little bit about how, what I experienced and what I learned, you know, over all these years. And then teaching, you know, I taught at Juilliard for 37 years. So and all the great players who came through there, you know, that's, a, that's always... That's a trip, you know, the number of really fine musicians who go through there. And I was good at teaching at that level. 
that was a good level for me. That's good. It's people at a certain point, you know, you, the, sometimes the less you do, the better that is. You, you it's interesting you say that because, you know, I've talked to Ben Wright. I've talked to Brandon Ridenour and you have come up in lesson, you know, in, in the interviews about the, the way those lessons were structured. And it doesn't sound like any traditional university applied experience. I mean, it was, and I think Brandon, uh, this might be, tell me if I'm wrong on this. Brandon said there were some times where he would just come in, like you would just talk oh, yeah. your way through, right? No playing. Yeah, but, but, but you see here how Brandon right now plays the trumpet. He played the trumpet like that. So um, I have no, no comment on his trumpet playing that wouldn't be damaging. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I say, well, I think you should sound like this. Well, no, uh, he doesn't need to hear that. No. He sounds pretty good. He has, you know, he's at the point where he's chosen to play like he plays. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we it's might the swing of something. We might talk about the phrasing of something you know, go back and forth. I mean, like that, but, mm -hmm. you know, trumpet basics. Yeah. We would talk about trumpet stuff, you know, like, well, what, like an exercise we take, let's say, take an exercise. How would, you know, ask, how would you practice this exercise? How are you practicing it? Let me hear you play it. You know, and I'll say, well, I hear that you're doing this here. Maybe this could be, this sounds like a bump over here. This is, I don't know. What are you hearing? I'm feeling, you feel that, feel that? We go back and forth. I'm not saying with Brandon, but with other people. Sure. Ben Wright is, that's a different story, you know, with Ben. You know, Ben, Ben, he was auditioning for orchestras for like, um, I don't know, it seemed like 50 years. He would keep auditioning. He would be in Washington and Chicago Symphony, then he goes to Boston, but he would always win. You know, he'd always win the auditions. And then he ran out of auditions, and I think he, he went completely crazy. He's <laughs> dark, raving, mad, naked around Symphony Hall in Boston with his trumpet. You know, da, 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 da. He, <laughs> no, it's a joke. You know, it's a yeah, of course. I'm going to see Ben tomorrow, so I'll, I'll I'll tell him you said that. Like that, I said that live that he's been running. Oh around. yeah, it's there for pos all posterity. You know, uh, hear that about Benny. Yeah. Uh, David Wolf, uh, a friend of mine and a former student, a trumpet player here in Indy. Uh, of course, I think I introduced him to your Mahler 5 right. uh, video. So that's he's making a comment there. Hey, David, welcome. Glad you're here. David shows up to all these things. Right. He, he's another uh, trumpet nerd. Right. Uh, yeah. But, um, okay, so back to the book. Uh, well, actually, before back to the book, I want to talk about teaching. Because in 37 years of teaching, uh what were you, what teachers of yours were you channeling? What, what uh, experiences that you brought from your, your, uh, well, I'm trying to think, well, all your, all your, all your teachers. Well, when I was younger, I studied with Robert Nagel and Robert Nagel Stravinsky's favorite trumpet player, but I thought he was sort of a shitty teacher, you know, and, and he didn't play enough for me. He only played when he was going out on the road with the brass quintet. Then he would play a little bit in lessons, and that was fantastic. Mm. To hear him play, what a great, great player. He's of the level of Bud Herseth. You know, that's how well he played the trumpet. Wow. He was something else. But he never 
I don't know. For me at that time, I mean, when I think back to that time, I feel it, it, it's it's a bad feeling, not because of him, because of me, because I was too, I was not ready. I was just going too fast, you know. I was, you know, doing a lot of stuff, and I was, you know, I was, I was that guy, you know, going, you know, so I didn't so get it I needed as I wanted, you know. So how'd you slow down? Who slowed you down? Well, I, I, I didn't slow down. That's the problem, you know. Huh. Now, now I'm an old man. I still haven't slowed down. I That's mean, good. It, well, in a way, I haven't slowed down. You know, I'm still, my brain has not slowed down. Have you been teaching through all this? Very little. Very little. I do some classes. Mm -hmm. and I have, a, a, you know, a few students from time to time. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm not. I don't. I don't need to do the Zoom. I do. You know. I still have one student. I do the Zoom, but uh, it's rough. The Zoom is rough. Yeah, it's rough. <laughs> Just because it's like not in the same room. It's like not the. And if they're uh, students of a certain level, they need to be in a room where someone plays the trumpet for them, and so they get to hear it. Oh, it's supposed to sound like that. You know, so they they will if they're talented, they inhale that stuff. You hear it go, oh, like that. I get it. You know, really listening. So when they're coming to you at Juilliard, though, I mean, they're they're at the point to where uh, they don't need any of that fundamental stuff, right? I mean, they're they're at a level where you can really start to address musical issues from the beginning, right? Well, I'd say that's not altogether true. Because when you get to a, a certain level, then fundamental practice, you see the profundity of simple exercises, yeah. of really establishing simple exercises. So I would say there's a lot of discussion about that. Really a lot of discussion about, you know, working scales, how to, you know, what are you, what are you, how are you doing this? You're working your arpeggios, you know, being able to play up and down, up and down. I mean, that's, that's sort of it, isn't it? You know, right. and, and sort of like to hear a sound where it's like, oh, that sounds like it's in the middle of a, in the middle of the sound. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, you know, flat or it's like sort of everything sort of working, your tongue, your position, every, it's sort of going, you know, it's like mm -hmm. a going, coming out of you. So I think that, yes, and, and Anthony Plogue, Tony Plogue talks about this, about the profundity of simple exercises. But that doesn't come when someone's 18. Right. When they're one mm -hmm. they, they can do that. They can do that. Now, I'm not sure, like, I know Phil Smith, you know, you know his father, his father would rap him on the knuckles, I think, if he made a mistake. But, you know, that was like a, a rough thing. And I'm not sure what Winton did, but they made Winton practice. You know, I mean, it was like practice time. Yeah. Know? So, you know, they had, they were, they had that discipline very, mm -hmm. but of course, I mean, look at the talent. So, so uh, are you practicing these days? Well, I, I threaten to some days. I mean, I, I try to play a little bit every day, but I'm not really practicing. I'll play through a couple of tunes, maybe. Mm -hmm play a scale, you know, just to keep it on my face, but I'm not, I'm not performing. Mm -hmm. You know, if I go to perform, I play a tune or something, you know, it's not, 
I'm not going to play the Tomasi concerto with the Brandenburg. Right. Those days but are. You're, but you're not retired. I mean, you might be retired from the Met, but you still intend to play and teach. Yeah, some. I mean, not you play, teach, be involved in music with projects, producing, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm active, you know, as an artist. Yes. Yeah. I would say, you know, I still make videos. I made one this year called Oh, White Boys, you know. I wrote the lyrics, a little trumpet on that. I play and sing. Yeah. I should send that one to you. Oh, I'd love to see it. You know, it's funny. Uh, I've always told people, you know, I'm going to play taps at my own funeral. You know, that's how long it's going to be. You know, I'm going to play till I die. But that's kind of changed. You know, I, I didn't realize that my own uh, goals were, were going to evolve. And now I'm into the Suzuki trumpet thing. Huh. Really into, you know, starting to really look at at teaching like four and five year old kids by you know, how to do this by ear. Uh, yes. Yes. Th that's a big, that's a big thing to get someone. Okay. Play this note. Good. Play this note. Play this note. Okay. Yeah. So the, uh, you know, I just finished this course and it's, it's terrific. It's just like all the other Suzuki violin stuff, but, and they do start to read at a certain point, but you know, the, the point of that really is uh, I always thought I was going to play trumpet and only trumpet. That's all I was going to focus on. And it's funny, you know, how life starts to take these turns. And it's like, I, in 10 years, what if I'm not playing trumpet anymore? What if I'm just focused on, you know, teaching? You know, I don't know where, I don't know where that's going to lead to. Yeah, I mean, it, it changes. I mean, of course, you know, when I was younger, you know, I would want to play trumpet all the time, all day, all the, just show up and play. It didn't matter what it was. I'd play anything, you know, wow, chance to play the, oh, that's great. Um, now, I mean, you know, those days are gone, you know. Um, so that's not as interesting for me. It's like I'd like to see younger people doing stuff. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly oh. not going to take a gig like, oh, you want to go play this? Well, no. Um, yeah. How about this guy? He's great. I already did that. I don't need to do that anymore. It's not. It's like, okay, let somebody else do it. And I'll stick to writing and making stuff. So. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of writing, I, I want to go back to your, uh, I don't know if it was your first book, but Orchestra Confidential. Was that your first book? Yes, that was the first one. Yeah, that was terrific. I, I don't have a graphic. I should have uh, loaded a graphic for that one, but uh, we'll get back to that one in a second. So, you know, I told you up front that the two things that impressed me in this book were, uh, oh, there you go. Yeah, very tongue-in-cheek, but hilarious. But very true. And, well, here's the thing. I find that everybody finds it funny except for the chapter about them. Oh, no, even then they have to find that funny. <laughs> true. That's not true. They have to find it funny. You know, violin section, stand partners. Are you kidding me? No, my God. Like a section. Imagine that. You know, I described that in the book, going through music school. First, you start at Suzuki. You're on the violin and you're doing that. And then you get pretty good. Okay, you play, you know, like little groups and like a little orchestra. But then you go to music school and you study solo repertoire and chamber music and all the great things. And then you wind up in the orchestra with 31 other people playing your part, your notes. 
and you have to get along and deal with that. And you're holding in your hand a fiddle that you hocked, you're, you took out a fourth mortgage on your house to buy yourself an instrument, right? So, I mean, it's sort of funny. I mean, it's humorous. And the That's guy true. getting paid, you know, 30 times what you're making drops his arms and it's like coming out of him from God to him. <laughs> it's great. I mean, it's like a bad joke. I had a great time writing this because, you know, I was like working with Jeff Kernow on the Philly Orchestra. He did all the illustrations. Yeah. He's great. He's a great cartoonist. So that was fun. Yeah, he actually did the uh, the logo for my for Studio HFL. I don't have it up right now, but he did. Uh, he did my logo for me. Oh, nice. That's yeah. nice. Jeff's a great guy. Um, yeah, well, my wife is a violinist. I can't remember if I if I showed her that section in that book, but uh, I, I may have to let her read that again and get a reaction. Really pay attention this time. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of offended that, you know, you haven't bought a, a copy specifically for your wife, you know. <laughs> I did. I, I, I'm, I have yet to gift it to her. That's just the thing. I, I'm going to, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, uh, back to this one. Uh, risk, you know, talking about risk, and maybe I heard you even say this on an on another podcast. You're just talking about how you listen to trumpet players these days, and everything just sounds it sounds good, sounds safe, right? But it's like, well, it's, where's where's would, the edge? Well, I wouldn't say it's the trumpet players. It's like um, the level of playing in orchestras now is just beyond the beyond it's so good you know like in all the sections all the way back everywhere it's always really good so i figured if they played that well and they didn't play that well 50 years ago in the orchestra mm -hmm. they couldn't play the, it wasn't as cons all the way back through the section mm -hmm. everybody couldn't make it but in that, it's like sort of contained. I always feel like going to an orchestra concert, it's a little too contained. I would like it way less contained. That's all. So it's not like individual player taking a risk. Well, um, on the trumpet, you, you sort of have to, you know, calculate the odds. I mean, you can take a risk, but it's like, you know, maybe, maybe not that one. You're not feeling it this time but um yeah i mean yeah it's good to take risk mel broyles took risk he would do stuff but herseth would take risk like the trumpet was going to break you know you know sax plays plays more like that you know say like more in that in that style i love it you know uh, so I think I heard this part on a podcast, uh, one of your interviews, but uh, yeah, you would listen to people coming into Juilliard, right? right. And you, you could tell if they could turn a phrase, right? You could tell immediately uh, whether you were going to take them or not. For me, yeah, that was interesting. For yourself. Yeah. I mean, there are other players who came in like really great and athletic and, you know, you had to take them. Maybe they'd be less interesting to me, like sort of. But I feel like when I was there, it was like, you know, for the the end of that time, the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years when Ray Mace is there, Ray Mace is a chamber musician. 
and he's also interested in someone. Oh, okay, can you turn a phrase? I mean, you know, if you could, you know, I don't really care if someone 18 could bang out the Honiger and Trotta. I mean, it's not, I mean, okay. I mean, a lot of people get hurt practicing yeah. Honiger and Trotta. They get hurt. You know, it's like, what are you doing? You know, like figuring out how to do that, you know. Well, you know what I mean. You must yeah. see it. You must see it. You talk uh, about the, the, the man who plays in, in the Muncie Orchestra with you, the farmer. So, oh, yeah. Right, if you said, okay, you have to learn this, the Honiger and Trotter. He could come back. Maybe he wouldn't be able to play after that. His playing would be all messed up. You know, he could be. I'm not saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe he could, you know, kill it. I mean, but um, you know what I'm saying? It's like that. I do. You know, uh, one of the cool things, of course, about YouTube is, you know, you get to listen to great performances, but you also get to watch. And one of my favorite people to watch these days, of course, is Hokan, you know, coming out with all the Charliers. And, of course, I, I love the way he plays. I love the way he sounds, but I like watching him, too. It's like, oh, that's what efficient playing looks like. Right. I mean, it's just he seems relaxed. Everything flows. I, I don't know if you would agree with that. You don't have to agree with that. But that's that's the I, value to me of YouTube, being able to see it. Not agree with that. You know what I mean? I mean, if you see it, it's like, well, OK. I mean, I couldn't stand up at any point in my life and play one Charlie A. <laughs> and the other guy's Jim Wilt in Los Angeles. Oh, right. You know, and then other things that I've heard, I said, wow, who's, what's his name? The guy in um, somewhere in Eastern Europe. Can't remember his name. Just beautiful, beautiful playing. Mm. Wilt, you know, knocking out one etude after another. So, I mean, I, you know, and I've told him this, that I actually hate him for that. <laughs> you know, like a great jealousy and envy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um. Pink Baby Monster. Yes. Where'd that come from? Well, this is our 20th year of existence. Congratulations. <laughs> We're doing a, a film this summer. It's like a, a retrospective. We're going to go through that. Should be. I think it'll be great. It'll be very funny. We're looking forward to it. So we're meeting out there in Oregon. We're going to spend a couple of weeks doing this. So, But Pink Baby Monster started on September 9th, 2001. And I was hanging out with a friend of mine, um, an artist, an old friend of mine, visual artist. And we were just hanging out one Sunday. And he said, you know, we should do something. What's the, the what would, how would you just sum up the American culture. And he said, well, I think maybe pink baby monster, you know, this baby who's like naive, voracious, insatiable, spooging all over the world, <laughs> you know, this, uh, right. And then two days later, they fly the plane into the world trade center. Yeah. And everybody reacted. Most people, how could they do that to us? America. We're so good and innocent. Well, um, there's a lot of American soldiers and military 
stuff going on all over the world. So you could see how someone may take a little bit of, be very resentful of it. I'm just saying. That's why they're naive. Really? America's freedom and goodness and, well, uh-huh, okay. I mean, maybe if you lived in Yemen, you wouldn't say that. Yeah, a whole different perspective. Maybe in Serbia, you wouldn't say that, you know, or if you lived somewhere else in Central America, you wouldn't necessarily say that. There's good and the bad. In any case, so we, so at that point, it became very serious. So then, because you know, I was getting annoyed that people, well, don't you understand Pink Baby Monster? It's like, you get it. Someone, you know, wanted to do something harmful to us. They committed a mass murder, you know. And then, um, so then Pink Baby Monster started. We recorded an album. We made an album, which I think is, um, where is it? Somewhere. What, what would you call that style? Well, it's it's like yeah, you know, it's it's shining, it's shining. Yeah. Well, it's like 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 hip hop influenced, electronica influenced. It's a lot of trumpet playing on it. So we did all the you know the music, and I wrote all the lyrics. I wrote this whole thing and produced it with Brian McWhorter. I think it's on Spotify. I think it's a, I think it's a good record. I think it's an interesting record. I'm very proud of that work. But after that, we didn't. I didn't want to do politics anymore. It was sort of political, because it's like ah, you know, the only way to get things across is if you're funny. If it's funny, people will look at it. So you're not banging someone over the head with it. Not that I think the record was banging anybody over the head with it, but you know, and we did a um, the record, and then we made a a video. Uh, I Live for Art, there's a track on the record. Mm -hmm. it's electronic, it's I Live for Art. We did a video that actually got, you know, won some awards. We, it got played all over in some art exhibitions. But then we got in trouble at Juilliard because they pulled it. It was before we invaded Iraq. I Live for Art, and it's it's the music is Tosca, from Tosca. Okay, Luci Venestella, you know, the Uri the and the last act of Tosca. And it was that over, I live for art, and it's the planes going into the building. So it's a commentary on Carline Stockhouse and said, that's the greatest work of art in the history of the world is that. Because look, billions of people saw that. And it played over and over. And it was like something like, holy shit, you just can't believe it. And then these things, right? Yeah. This yeah. thing, you, you, it's operatic, beyond operatic. And it's and it's horror, the scope of it, and how it changed the world after that. You know, it changed the world. That event was world changing. That we would saw it. It's like captured on all these cameras. It's an extraordinary moment, you know. You don't so have why why pull the video, right? I mean, what what was the point behind that? For them to to pull it out of the, because they were afraid that uh, it would be a danger to some of the students there. No, they, they didn't, they, they didn't want to put it on in a show. So, I mean, they pulled it, the newspaper wrote about it. It's like sort of, a, it was like a big mess. It's like a big mess that, you know, I really didn't want to get into that, but I, yeah. but believe me, I get into more messes all the time. If you do, <laughs> 
if I do make videos in the videos I've made, I mean, it's gotten me in hot water. You know, well, I noticed Petrushka is not out there anymore. Right. We well, that, there's reasons we we had to pull that down, but um, that may go back up. We'll see. I mean, I mean talk about edgy, right? It, but I I saw all the humor in that. Well, it's very fun. It's supposed to be funny. It's a parody. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we did it. And, um, well, I, ho I hope it goes back up at some point. Um, so what about the stuff coming out this year? How does that compare to, to where you started 20 years ago? Kind of in the same, uh, the same groove, same ideas, or maybe not same ideas, but same focus. Um, well, I did one old white boys mm -hmm. and, and it's to the tune. Everyone knows about old white boys of old folks. Just like taxes, they don't ever go away. They get lots of stuff, but it's never enough. You know, yada, 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 yada. Mm -hmm. This sort of thing. And then I play some trumpet. And it's like sort of referring to myself, too, because I'm an old white boy myself. Now I'm an old man. So I think it's very funny. Because look who we got. We had Donald Trump and Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, you know, Nancy Pelosi. Everybody's 80. Mm -hmm. They're older than I am. You mm -hmm. know? What is going on? Right. This it's like sort of this thing is fading away. I mean, I don't know what, you know, what comes after it is any better, but maybe something will be better. You know, maybe maybe you should run for president. I mean, I already did that. Didn't you see my campaign? No. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah we did it in um, what was it? 2012. <laughs> and that's right. I did did a thing like uh, "Fuck You, I Got Mine." That was a tune. That was my campaign song. You, you what you need is somebody to organize a, uh, a super pack for you, right? It's like yeah. uh, thank you, Larry. Thank you for volunteering. That's yeah, the, I'll do it. I'll do it. You, you know, you just uh, I also have to be charged in charge of payroll, right? So, um, so uh, I can't imagine that that title is not going to be controversial. Right, it's going to kind of stir the pot. Well, it's an old video, you know. We we did this thing, you know. It's called "I Got Mine." That's the name of the tune. Is "I Got Mine." Mm -hmm. You know, we put it out. Yeah. Good, you know. It's like. Yeah. Same people involved, Brian and who else? Well, Brian and but there's a cast. The, the um, what's that group of the four horn players called? Um, Genghis Barbie. Genghis. Never heard of him. These four women who played the French horn, and they were in it. My son, Sam, was in it when he was like 12 years old. <laughs> he was in it dressed just as I was in a white suit. Mm -hmm. Any me, you know. <laughs> so we did that video. I got mine. Yeah. I, I like that one. Yeah. Um, is, your, is your son uh, still a musician? Um, well, now, maybe you didn't say he was a musician. You just said he was in the video. Is, is he it, a musician? Well, he, he plays, the, he's a good pianist, mm -hmm. but he's, um, he's just finishing Harvard. He's going to MIT for a doctoral program in computational biochemistry. So he went in, he went in a different way. You know? Holy cow. Yeah. He's going to make more in his first year than you made your entire career uh, with the Met, right? Could be, you know, I wouldn't be. 
wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Are you still in touch with uh, with your colleagues from the Met? I mean, not all of them, sure, but. See Pete Bond every week or many weeks, and we have a, a Zoom call. We all get together. And Pandolfi was on. I saw him. Mm-hmm. But yes, I'm in touch with with those guys, those trumpet players. Yes, I'm mm-hmm. in. Yes. You know, to be a fly on the wall all those years and uh, overhear what was going on in that trumpet section, I think that would be the best, the best book. The best play, the best. Well, you could make an opera out of that, right? Oh, I mean, you have to understand that Jim Pandolfi was in that section. So when he was in there, when Pete Bond, then Pete Bond came in the orchestra after Jim Pandolfi. So Pete Bond sat between me and Jim Pandolfi. So that was uh, that was an education for him. It was very funny. You know, we'd be going back and forth. I mean, it depends, you know. You know, Pandolfi, Pandolfi's very, very funny. But every time I speak to him now, I said, Jim, got to get this out of the way. You're the greatest trumpet player on earth. Okay, now we can talk. <laughs> I always tell him, you're the, you're the greatest, man. You're the greatest. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Was that prerequisite for actually being able to have a conversation? Well, that's our joke, you know. Oh, uh, okay, I got it, got it. <laughs> so, well, it's nice to know that, uh, you know, you're still, well, I mean, active is not the right word for it. I mean, you've been writing. This this has been uh, selling pretty well for you? Yes, it's actually doing very well. The, the, uh, the feedback has been fantastic. I mean, people are really enjoying reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can open up anywhere and just start reading. So it's um, there's a lot of stuff in there. You talked about on swing. There's stuff on teaching, on teaching advanced students, on teaching not so advanced students. So I think um, I'm, yeah. I'm very gratified by the reception it's received. I, I thought the book was over, and then I get to the appendix, and it's right. like that was some of the best reading, right? And in fact, I just opened uh, to the genius of Mel Broyles. Right. right. And that in itself, uh, well, I mean, that's, it's not a short story, right. But, uh, all brilliant writing. It's just kind of funny that you made it an appendix. Uh, you know, well, the, I didn't know why it was. Well, I, I, I wanted to put it in there. Now it was reprinted from an ITG journal. So I had put it in there and I, I, it's been making the rounds. It's been around. So hmm. I figured, okay. I'll stick it in here, you know, talk about someone who was like a great character. Right. You know, a character, there are very few characters like that anymore. So Mel Broyles. I mean, you could ask like all the guys who played with him, you know, Jim Pandolfi and Pete Bond and Jim Ross. They have a lot of stories about Mel. And it's like they're blown away by Mel. You know, Mel is just such a character. What a character. Oh, my goodness. So once he was gone, did you ever have anybody come in, uh, you know, a conductor come in and ask for that? You know, Mel was gone. Could could you deliver what Mel used to deliver? Well, no. I mean, I didn't play like that. But, I mean, you know, I could play um, Vutzek, Salome, Electro. I mean, I could play this stuff. Now, when he played it, when he was at in his at his height, I loved hearing him play that stuff. 
wow, playing Electra. I mean, really, really exciting, just beautiful, exciting. That that stuff is written for him, you know. And it's not just the volume, right? Oh no, it was just it, it was just uh, the whole thing, the energy, the, the the playing. I mean, he could. He was quite something. He was really quite something. Um, now I, I didn't have to play with him very much. You know, the other guys. You know, the, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. I, you think about playing an opera. There's an awful lot of time to sit. Yes. Right. And then being able to channel that kind of energy after you've sat for twenty, thirty, forty, or more minutes. Well, I mean, that's Mel used to sit there and and count measures. Hmm. Mel would sit there and he would be paying attention. Everybody else would be like, you know, fidgeting, looking at reading or, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. It's just like, oh, boy, yeah, you're, you're 40 minutes. You'd leave the pit if you have 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. Come back in, you know, when you have to play, you know, that's sort of, but not Mel. Mel was there. Mel was on it. You know, he was the captain, captain of that ship. Well, down to the stroke, right? I mean, they literally carried him out of the pit. That's right. Yeah. But he came back after that. I know. But I mean, that talk about dedication. You know, he said he had a stroke, but then he, they propped him back up in the chair and he finished, <laughs> finished that, the. Oh, yeah. 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 Unreal. Yeah, it is unreal. unreal. Um, so uh, not to put you on the spot, but uh, did you ever miss an entrance? <laughs> did I ever miss an entrance? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, have you got a have you got a list? <laughs> oh, they're infamous moments, you know, infamous moments of missing entrances. Many over the years, some of them really bad, you know. Mm. I mean, there was there was a time when they forgot to call the stage man up to the stage, and you know we ran backstage. The backstage conductor's absolutely flipping out. You know, where the fuck are you guys? God damn. <laughs> People, you know, straggle in and maybe play a couple notes. Yeah. But yes, I've missed entrances. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's going to happen. Of course, it's going to happen. Oh, it's going to happen. Now, yeah. the hardest things to... Um, I've never missed an entrance in Wagner. Wagner, you got to sort of, when you play... Wagner is, is, in a certain way, the most difficult things to play. Because as you say, you sit there for 45 minutes and then you have to be pulling the sword out of the tree that's you playing the sword mode ba bam bam ba bam 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 and it always feels horrible because everything has been going and you're like cold and you, you know you're hearing like a sort of a c major chord tremoloing behind you and it's like well you know you maybe subtly want to adjust to some pitch you're feeling you know so <laughs> that was funny so i mean it's hard so pandolfi asked me well how do you prepare for wagner he said what do you, he said what do you practice i said the best thing is don't practice at all practice very very little because you have to be able fresh enough that you feel you can pick it up and it's going to come out you know notes are going to speak because mm -hmm. you might have to come in and play something very soft, but it's exposed. You know, you're playing stuff that's exposed. So it was like that. Uh, I, I, 
favorite composer? You know, I'm I'm a big fan of Puccini, but do you had favorite composer that you you played over the years? Yeah, I love the Puccini. I loved I loved the Puccini and the Verdi the most, and Mozart. Mm-hmm. Um, the Strauss operas parts, I really like. Mm-hmm. I mean, now to listen to him, I mean, I get there. Um, it's a fun challenge to play a Strauss opera because it's like jumping over hurdles. Mm-hmm. It's not like you, you you get to the next hurdle. It's like some awkward thing or like a little interjection that's hard mm-hmm. you know somebody's like well that's that I, that's not really particularly fun frau and shot frau and shot and the woman without a shadow that one's uh kind of fun to play there's a lot to play and there's this beautiful chorale at the end of the first act extended long that goes on for a long long time it's hard but it's it's fun nice to play stuff like that you know, I hear you and Peter talk about, oh, you know, the aria at the end of this or the this part of this opera. And I'm thinking, you know, in the orchestral world, it's like we, we really are two separate things. You know, it's like you could ask me about a Mahler symphony or uh, something like that. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. But you guys, it, it seems like your favorite parts to talk about are not necessarily always the best trumpet parts. It's like you know, you're talking about the, the, the melodic line or the solo, however you want to say it, in, you know, the soprano aria here. Oh, yeah, the music. I mean, you start to get to enjoy the music. You're in the theater. Mm-hmm. Working in the Met is working in the theater. I mean, you, I, you know, over the years, I mean, I got to know all the stagehands and all the people who would work backstage, on and on and on, all the dressers. You know, everybody, it's like a gigantic place, you know, Mm -hmm. the electrical department, you know, this department, this department, and they're all around and they're in the cafeteria yet. So it's it's like a thousand people work there. So, you know, there's a lot of people coming in all the time. So you're just one little part of this big machine. Yeah. You know, you're doing your gig. So, you know, you and everybody knows what they're supposed to do. And it's amazing how well it runs. Mm -hmm. I mean, have you been back? Sorry, have you been back since you retired? Yeah. I'd like to go to the opera. You know, I like to go as a as a spectator in the audience member. I love it. I don't miss Do you... I don't I don't sit there, wow, I wish I could play that. No, no, yeah. I'm enjoying the opera. Enjoying the You'll... music. Or Do you I let go... the guys know that you're there? No. No. I mean I just go. I'm just I don't I'm not hanging out down there. Hey, I that's that's enough now it's been a long time so most everybody's gone yeah when i was there yeah but it's great i mean you know it's like um the the met you know i would think this you know we're sitting in the pit so i'm sitting that job is like sitting in the exact same geographical location for year after year and if if i went back a hundred years ago you know when they premiered tosca at the met it would feel the same way and essentially in the same place playing out of the same part playing the same <laughs> part so it's like oh okay so it's like you know rip van winkle you know go to sleep you wake up and you're still right. playing but it was great you know we didn't play you know it was not like a broadway show where you play the same exact thing year after year but 
So, you know, things would come in and out of the repertoire. Yeah. But I always liked the Puccini. I loved the Puccini. It was nice. Well, I, I think I, I'm drawn to that just because it's so fluid. That's the best way I can describe it. It's just so fluid. It's so... I, I Last year or a couple of years ago, I went to see Madame Butterfly at the Met. And it's a beautiful production. And the music and the marriage of the music and and the, the libretto is just perfect and genius. Beautifully written and orchestrated. Beautiful tunes. It's just... Um, Man, it's like very, very high-level stuff, you know. It's the best ticket in town, you know, to go to the Met, see something like that. Some of the newer stuff that's been written, anything uh, really bend your ear? Uh, boy, I sound old when I say that. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen too many new things. I didn't see Nico Muley's thing. I didn't go at that mm -hmm. point. I don't remember why I didn't, but I was not involved in that. Um what else? No, I mean, there were some things I saw. So the nose, they did a new production. I mean, Shostakovich, the nose. I didn't care for that so much. Mm -hmm. I didn't like the production. I think the music, it goes on too long, but, you know. They so we point me, music director. Let me, I'll do it. <laughs> well, there may be an opening at some point, right? Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I, I know that's... Uh... I don't think you'd want to show up for all the extra rehearsals, right? Extra it, it, wouldn't it be fun just to show up there for the performance and do the gig, right? As a player. Well, as, or a conductor. I mean, you mean to <laughs> hold and conduct the opera? Yeah. That's like a great deal of fun. <laughs> okay. That would be tough. Now, with symphony orchestra, that would be fun. That's much easier. Opera, you actually have to you know, keep things, uh, you know, keep things going. Yeah. yeah. Able to coordinate the stage in the pit. You actually have to do a job, you know, symphony, right. uh, not, not so much. Not as yeah. much. Uh, uh, we'll wrap up here, but uh, Brandon Ridenauer, you know, his dad, uh, rich uh, piano player. Um, they came and one of the regional groups I play with, they were doing a performance. Well, it was a time when we had just moved our downbeat from 8 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Oh, boy. So 7.30 comes, and our music director is not even in the building. And so Rich just stands up. They, they come on out, and he stands up in front of the orchestra, and, and off we go. And about halfway through the tune, our music director walks onto stage. You know, of course, big applause, you know big smile on his face and of course it was everything was fine but yeah you're right yeah that could happen you walk in cold or anybody really could start the anybody could start the bus and start driving right yes they could yeah and you could conduct an opera at the med if you didn't know what you're doing if the the right personnel was there people mm -hmm. who knew yes you could do it but it wouldn't be easy like if you had to go in at sight read at the met something like tosca that would be tough if yeah. you were a player because everybody knows it. And you don't, you know, all the little subdivisions and it's very confusing. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I would step in every hole. Yeah. Hey. So, uh, Hey, uh, Mark, 
this I, I know we kind of bopped around on on different things back and forth to the book and whatnot, but uh, I think we covered some really cool stuff. I feel like got to know you a little bit better. Um, looking forward to some of this new stuff coming out too. And you've got to send me uh, when's it coming out, or is it uh, already out? The old white boys. Yeah, that's already out. I think it's on YouTube. I think it's on YouTube. Old white. Okay. I think yeah. it's the monster one. You know, I did it. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll check that out. But um, thanks for taking the time to be here. I really appreciate it. Great pleasure. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So um, hang out for just a second. I'll I'll wrap things up here. Um, so everybody that that tuned in and is going to listen to this after the fact, thanks for joining us. Uh, of course. This interview, as well as the others in March, sorry, April, <laughs> uh, sponsored by Austin Custom Brass and Trent Austin. Uh, be sure to uh, check them out. Oh, we got a couple of late comments here. Uh, Joel on trumpet. This was excellent. Noel Tredit Gosling, uh, stellar interview. Enjoyed it immensely. We string players love Puccini also. Uh, Noel Gosling, uh, you may know Dan Gosling, uh, Chop Saver. Right, right. Yeah. So thank you, Noel, for your comment. Joel on trumpet, Bobby Haggerty, David, Andrew, thanks for, for watching, chiming in, tuning in. Uh, let's see. Anything else? Uh, go to studiohfl.com if you want to subscribe to the newsletter. And the next live interview is this coming Sunday night, 8 p.m., with Gabriel DiMartino. That should be a lot of fun. And uh, thanks again to our guest, Mark. And uh, we'll see everybody around.